So uh, just to do another recap, uh, the first three chapters um, were very heavy in theology. So uh, the Apostle Paul tells us, and I know this is not in order, but essentially where we came from, who we are, where we're going, and the goodness that he's shown to us and he's going to show to us. In fact, it kind of concludes in a chapter number three where Paul has a prayer that God would give us the strength just to comprehend the love of God um, that he has poured out towards us. And then the next three chapters are very heavy in application. And you'll see this in a lot of in Paul's writings where he'll give us a lot of theology, a lot of uh, truths about God and who we are, and then it's usually followed up by some application as how do we live these truths out? And I'm not really sure if you're in the habit of uh, underlining your Bible, uh, but if you are, and I'm not going to go through uh, chapter 4 again, but there are some things to underline from chapter 4 to chapter 5 where a theme begins. And it's, we've learned what we should believe and who we are in Christ, but then it starts talking about how we should walk. Um, Ephesians 4, 1 says to walk worthy of our calling. Uh, 4.17 says that we shouldn't walk like the Gentiles because they were in darkness and they had hard hearts. Ephesians 5.2 says to walk in love. Ephesians 5.8 says to walk as children of light. And Ephesians 5.15 says that we should be walking in wisdom. I think Charles Spurgeon said it best when I was kind of consulting him a little bit or his books as far as this transition. He says, we must not be satisfied with feeding the soul by meditation, but rise up from the banquet and use the strength we have gained. Sitting at the feet of Jesus must be succeeded by following the footsteps of Jesus. And that takes us to the beginning of Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, that says, Be therefore followers of God as dear children. That word followers can also mean imitators. And I was trying to think in my house, what are some of the things that my kids do that either imitate me or Ashley? You know, they're not really that old yet. And maybe you can point it out, but I couldn't think of a whole lot. And uh, what I did come up with, though, and I got permission from my wife uh, before I used this, was uh, there's something that my wife does that my mother-in-law does all the time. And for the longest time, I let it down until recently. Maybe it's because we've been stuck in the house together all day, every day for seven days a week. You just start picking up on these things. And well, when my mother-in-law, Patty, gets into these serious conversations, she always like raises her tonal inflections. It's always, I know, or okay. And uh, well, Ashley does the same thing. And I, again, I always let it down until one day they were on the phone together and I heard him doing it back and forth and I, I lost it. It was like, I know, and Ashley, okay, seriously, just back and forth. And I was like, wow, that is so awesome. So you can tell when someone's been raised in someone's household. Not that you always mimic everything your parents do, but whether you like it or not, in one form or another, there's some things that your parents taught you or some patterns of behavior that their, your parents did that you follow. And it says that we are to be followers or imitators of God as dear children. Because the truth is, as Christians, becoming a Christian means over a period of time becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. And that's not something that we always have to Actually, let me go ahead and take you to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 says, But we all with an open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. And the Lord, who is the Spirit, makes us more and more like him, as we are changed into his glorious image. Once we get saved, the Holy Spirit of God comes in our heart, and he's transforming us from one form of glory to another. He's making us more and more like Jesus Christ. And Paul is saying, we've seen all the things that we need to know about who we are in Jesus Christ, and these things should have personal effect in our lives through the Holy Spirit of God. 
by knowing these truths and applying them, we should be becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. And then he continues on about how we should walk. He says that we need to walk in love. Verse 2, and walk in love as Christ also hath loved us and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. To imitate God and to be more like Christ means to walk in love. And I'm not going to go into this in too much because we're going to see a couple things. There's a general principles he sets out, for example, loving one another, and it talks about submitting to one another. And then later on in the chapter, we're going to talk about marriage, and these ideas are going to get brought up again. So for the sake of time, and because we're going to be covering over 30 verses, I'm going to be uh, narrowing some of these things down. But uh, just a quick overview of what it means to walk in love. Jesus made it known to his disciples that we would be known as his followers by the fact that we had love for one another. First John tells us that the sign of being a true believer is that we have love for the brethren. As followers of Christ, if we're, we should have the fruit of the Spirit, and one of, or part of that fruit is, well, love. And we should have a genuine love for one another. We're all familiar, I believe, um, if you spend any time in Scripture, especially uh, 1 Corinthians 13, we talk about it being the, uh, the love passage, where it talks about all the things that charity does. But we're about to transition to something what love doesn't look like. And that's not inconsistent within Scripture, because 1 Corinthians 16, talking about charity or love, says, It rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. So after he tells us to walk in love, then he gives us a broad series of things, applications of things that we shouldn't be doing. He goes through quite an extensive list in verse number three. It says, but fornication and unclean, all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as becometh or as proper for saints. Neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor jesting, jesting, which is crude joking, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. He says that there are certain things in our lives as we follow Christ, as we become imitators of God, that aren't becoming for Christians. It's just something that's not really fitting for who we claim that we are. And he brings up the idea first of fornication. And if you heard anything from uh, Pastor Tony this last Wednesday when he was talking about how to deal with sexual abuse, he talked about fornication, the idea of a pornea. And I tell you, fornication can be anything that's in our minds or physically acted upon. Uh, Jesus says in Matthew 5, 27, Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, that thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. Jesus makes it clear in this passage that it's not necessarily the things that come in, but the things that are coming from our heart that defile us. And some people think that, well, because I've, and I've heard this said before, and to, to be quite honest, it's, it's, it's very sinful. They'll say, well, you know, it's okay. I've heard this from family. It's okay. You can look. You just can't touch. No. Jesus says to even look into lust is already committing adultery in your heart already. And it's because the heart is what defiles us. Remember when Jesus was eating and he didn't wash his hands and the Pharisees got upset with Christ and his disciples. They said, why aren't you washing your hands and following the traditions of the Pharisees? And he says, don't you understand that the things that you put inside your body are just going to go out, but it's what comes out of the heart. Lust, any type of sin, covetousness, envy, wrath, anger, greed. These are things that come from our heart, and this is what defiles us. And whenever you look in sexual lust, or whenever you even physically act in sexual lust, can I tell you that it is also devaluing someone who is in the image of God? 
Because God says that we are all made in the image of God. We all have inherent integrity. We all have inherent value because we were made in his image. And if your heart, you're lusting after someone and it's not your spouse, can I tell you, you're looking at that person as an object. You're not looking at them as an image bearer of God. And when you commit physical fornication with someone, what's happening there is you're devaluing not only that person, but yourself as well too, because you have more dignity, you have more value than to participate in this kind of sin. I remember uh, I was talking to a, a pastor. He, he brought up a story with me and just for um, protection of identity and details, I won't say all the names, but he was working with someone who was struggling with this and he, uh, he had made the comment that this person um, had a hard time wanting to give this up. And he, the pastor sh shared with this guy that he's like, look, the Bible talks about the deceitfulness of sin. Sin and the devil have this way of making these false promises to you. And this goes more than just beyond the lust as far as sexual lust. This goes into broad application of any kind of sin where you're thinking in your mind, if I could just have what I'm looking at, if I can just have what I want, then I'll be satisfied. But what happens when we finally get to have this sinful desire accomplished, the Bible says, for the wages of sin is death. Sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. And so the people, they buy into this lie and they think that if I can just pursue this and I finally get it, then I'm going to have everything that I want. And reality is, yes, there is pleasure in sin for a season, but after that, regret. After that, guilt. After that, the realization that you are not fulfilled. Anger, disappointment, betrayal, sorrow. This is what sin brings. And that's not something that's becoming of a Christian. It talks about uncleanness and covetousness. To covet means that we are, it means to desire things that someone else has, something that doesn't belong to you. And can I tell you, covetousness is something that is prevalent in our culture. In fact, entire political campaigns are driven off of it. It is basically, hey, you vote for me, I will give you everything you want. You see what all these rich people have? Vote for me and I will take it from their pockets and I will give it over to you. And so people with a desire to constantly want to have more because, again, they have this false impression. If I was just a little bit better off, then I would be more satisfied. But they don't realize that even the people who are rich find that covetousness, greed, is actually chasing after something that never ends because there's always another neighbor who has more than you do. Never having satisfaction means you never really have peace. It's taught that we're looking for equality of outcome, but not necessarily equality of opportunity. Can I tell you as Christians, that's not becoming of us. And we might think, well, I don't have a problem with covetousness, and sometimes I might say that too falsely. That is until I turn on HDTV. Now, let's just be honest. I'm like, I like the house we're in. I think we got a nice kitchen and that kind of stuff. And I don't know how these people get these money, but you see like these people like early 20s and they're going house shopping. Like, oh, I wonder what kind of house they're going to get. And it's like half a million dollars. I'm like, whoa, that's crazy. And then you see like how they'll remodel or something. It turns into a super nice house, super nice bathroom, super nice kitchen. And you start thinking in the back of your mind, wow, I wish I had more. So we need to guard ourselves against this. This idea of covetousness. We need to be able to echo what the Apostle Paul, as he says in Hebrews 13, 5, let your covetousness be, or let your conversation be without covetousness, and be content with such things as you have, for he has said, I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee. He also talks about foolish talking. And when I was trying to break this down in the original language, I, I mean, honestly, what it just means is stupid talking. <laughs> be careful with the things we say. And I think there's a disconnect between us and um, the things that we say. Or at least we try to put it there. 
I've, I've talked to people before who seem to think, well, there's the things that I say and there's the things that I do, but that's not really, you know, what's in my heart. And it goes on to talk about this idea of jesting and jesting again. It's kind of like a, a, a crude humor. And we think, well, yeah, I was joking about it, but again, that's not really who I am. Well, Luke 6.45 says, A good man out of the good treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is good. And an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is evil. For the abundance of the heart his mouth speaketh. I think I've told this story before, but a former co-worker I had a long time ago who said, Larry, I noticed you don't cuss, but I had a grandpa, and he cussed all the times, and he was a great Christian. The only thing I could think of was this verse. I'm like, well, Jesus does say, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And I think sometimes we try to separate who we really are, you know, with our deeds and the things we say. But like, oh no, this isn't really what's in my heart. This is just sometimes the things that I do. But that doesn't even make any sense. Anything we say, even if it's impulsive, it had to come from the will first. It had to come from a desire first. Something that stems from our hearts. And look, I'm not trying to condemn you. If sometimes you slip up, I slip up too. And I talk about this in connection groups all the time. I'm a I'm, I'm gifted in sarcasm. That's not a spiritual gift. It's a fleshly gift. And uh, it's something that I'm trying to personally tame. And I found in ministry that, you know, sarcasm isn't the greatest thing to have. Because what we might think is funny when you're dealing with people, a lot of people, if they don't share the same gift of sarcasm, actually get offended. And so uh, I found it's not necessarily the best thing to do. So if you think I'm still sarcastic, if you had met me you know, 15 years ago, you would see, well, yeah, he's actually made great strides, and, you know, praise God for that. But the idea of us having perfect speech, can I tell you, it, it really, it shows what's inside of our heart. And so I'm not sitting here trying to condemn you, think, telling you this is going to be perfect, because when we got saved, we got a new nature, but now we have two natures. We have the fallen nature and the new nature, and as you become more and more like Jesus Christ, your speech and your actions should change. It reminds me of Matthew 26. You're familiar with the story of Peter right before he denies him. Um, some of, some of uh, the servants come up to Peter as uh, Jesus is at the trial, and they say, hey, I, I, you were with this guy, weren't you? And Peter's like, no, no, I wasn't with this guy. And then one of the maids comes up, and she says, no, you were with him. What does she say? Your speech, it, it betrays you. Then what does he do? He starts cussing. He starts cursing. No, no, I don't know this guy. Even in Peter's mind, there was a connection. Oh, yeah, they're right. I'm talking like Jesus, and to separate himself, he starts cussing, and he starts cursing, and then right after that, Jesus looks at him, and it comes to Peter's mind that it was prophesied ahead of time that he would do this, and he walks away just weeping because of the guilt of what he did. But then later on in Acts chapter 4, we see something different. He's boldly proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ in front of the rulers. He's not scared of the persecution, and it says something that's rather remarkable. They look at these followers of Christ, and they take note of them, that these were ignorant and unlearned men, but that they had been with Jesus. Can I tell you, the more you spend time with Jesus Christ, the more it's going to affect your speech. But dirty speech, the things that we say, can I tell you, not just what you say on a Sunday, and not just what you say on around a pastor, but what you say around the workplace. What you say when you're not here, when you don't think you have any accountability before men, but can I tell you we're accountable before God, that is a reflection of what is in your heart. The things that we say, are they building up or are they tearing down? Are they slander? Are they giving out grace? Are they something that's appropriate for the occasion? But then it goes and it talks about giving thanks. And it 
it's right after all of this. It says, but rather giving thanks, giving of thanks in verse number four. And if there's one thing that is an exact contrast to this idea of sexual lust, covetousness, stupid talking, is the idea of having a godly contentment in giving thanks. And uh, as has already said, I think by Pastor Joel, you know, in 2020, I don't know what to think about 2020. I really don't. Um, I, I mean, we, uh, the virus came up, got people losing their jobs, some people losing their lives, people burning down neighborhoods and buildings. And you know, I'm in my mid-30s. It stings me to say that, but I'm there. But I could say at least within my own lifetime, I don't remember this kind of hatred and division even in our local communities. You know, it, it's very real. And I could say that if, you've, uh, if you're not a believer and you're watching this service, I understand why you might be thinking you have nothing to be thankful for. Um, this isn't necessarily the year I think a lot of people would naturally be counting their blessings. But if you're a Christian, you still have everything to be thankful for. Can I remind you to go ahead and listen to Ephesians chapter 1 again? Everything you have in Jesus Christ. To remind you that you are adopted into a royal family, that you are co-heirs with Jesus Christ. You have a home in heaven and something that's not going to change. And the goodness that God is showing you is going to be so great that it's going to take all eternity for us to analyze it and to be thankful for God for the things he's given to us. So as a Christian, you have everything to be thankful for. But if your hope was tied up in a political system, if your hope was tied up in prosperity, and I'm not, I'll, I'll be honest with you guys, this year burned me a little bit too. It, it really showed and I think exposed idolatry in my life because I was putting hope into things that should never have been hoped in. Our hope should solely be in Jesus Christ. We should be living for another country. And when we give thanks, it's truly a sign of the Spirit and the new man. You're not trying to seek after things that aren't necessarily, you're not trying to seek after things that your neighbor has. You're not trying to get things that God never designed for you to have, but you're content because you have Christ. But also, it goes into a warning. It talks about the idea of actually not having the, inher the inheritance. In verse number five, it says, For this you know, that no whoremonger, no unclean person, nor covetous man, who is an idolater, and catch this, hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no man deceive you with vain words, for because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience, be not ye therefore partakers with them. So not only is it saying that this list is really something that isn't fitting for a Christian, and I'm going to bring some statements of clarification, so uh, take what I'm saying right now a little bit loosely. I'll give it some context. But it is saying that if this is something that's in your life, that maybe you should consider that you're actually not a follower of Christ. In John 3, 6 through 9 says, For whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. Whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither known him. Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. He that committeth, and this actually can mean in the, in the Greek, makes a practice of sin, is of the devil. For the devil sinneth from the beginning. For, the purpose, or for this purpose the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, again, or making a practice of committing sin. For his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin, 
because he is born of God. All right, now, so for some clarification, this is not saying that Christians can't sin. In fact, we know Christians can sin, and if there's any question about that, read First and Second Corinthians. You hear about some very grievous sins of people who were genuinely saved. So it's not only that Christians can sin, Christians can cons- really commit some very, very grievous, horrible sins. But if you've made a profession of faith, and there's been no transition that you can tell in your life from the kingdom of darkness to a kingdom of light, from following the flesh to following the spirit, and the things that we read about are really a pattern for your life from the point you got saved, even to the point of today, there's no evidence. If you can't look back and see any evidence from that point to where you are now where the Holy Spirit of God has been drawing you and trying to help you get over the power of these sins, you can't see the chastening hand of God in your life to bring about sanctification, to bring you back to Him. I can tell you clearly from the Word of God, you're not one of His. And that's what this is getting at. Let no man deceive you. There are some people, and I do believe this, I believe in eternal security, but unfortunately I think it's been taught that once saved, always saved, means that we're saved but no new life. And that's not what the Bible teaches. I believe that the work that God started in us, he will bring it to completion as the scripture teaches. It doesn't mean it happens perfectly because we do have to cooperate with God. But the Holy Spirit's power should be evidenced in our life. And if you don't see it in your life, the fruit that it bears is the list that I just read. And that's just who you are. That really identifies who you are. And you say, well, I said a prayer. I came forward at a meeting and I shook someone's hand. Or I remember a time in my life, you might say, you even felt sincere about it. But no change, no fruit. We see the Bible making these statements over and over again. Because I think it's, these passages are obviously there for a purpose. It's for those who claim to have faith in Christ to do some, some introspection. To look into their lives and, is my faith real? Is it genuine? I'm not trying to get you to doubt your salvation. Look, if you honestly put your faith in Christ, you are saved. And even within sin, if there's a struggle going on in your life and you know God is calling you, you can feel him trying to change you and pulling you back and bringing things into your life. The fact that struggles there is an indication you are saved. But if you don't have that struggle, Romans 8 makes it very clear that if you're only walking in the flesh— If you're walking in the flesh and following the flesh, you're not one of his. So then it contrasts that with walking as the children of light. It says, For you were sometimes darkness, but now are you light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth, proving what is acceptable unto the Lord. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. For it is a shame even to speak of those things which are done in them in secret. But all things that are reproved are made manifest by the light. For whatsoever doth make manifest is light. Wherefore he saith, Awake thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. Look, the truth is, is before we trusted Christ as our Savior, we discussed this pretty heavily in Ephesians chapter 2, we were walking and we were a part of the kingdom of darkness. And the darkness really marked our lives, who we were, dead in our trespasses and sin and living a certain way. But he's saying now, if you're, what's really becoming of a Christian, what really fits what a Christian is, is someone who is walking in the light. And we see a parallel of this in John chapter 3, verses 19 to 21 that says, And this is the condemnation that light has come into the world, 
And men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For every one that doeth evil hateth the light. Neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, and his deeds may be manifest, that they are wrought in God. And I really love verse number 21, because again, it shows the grace of God and strips us of our pride, that because we are his workmanship, because of the grace of God in our life, when he changes us, we can walk towards the light. We don't mind if our lives are being exposed, not because we're great, but because of the work of God that's being done in us. And we can hold up our hands and say, look what God has done. But that's what it means to walk in the light. And uh, an authentic relationship with Jesus Christ means that we are walking in the light. We're no longer trying to cover our sins because remember the natural man hates the light because the Bible tells us that people who don't know Christ are trying to suppress the truth in unrighteousness. In fact, I would say this, I would be concerned if no one is ever offended by who you are. Luke 26, or Luke 6, 26 says, Woe unto them when all men shall speak well of you, for so do their fathers to the false prophets. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, be careful if no one doesn't ever think anything bad about you because you're a testimony in Christ. It's the same way, the same way the false prophets were praised because they always said what the people wanted to hear. And what I'm saying here, it's not a promotion of legalism. I've heard some pastors who falsely teach that, okay, and I'll agree with them up to a certain point. What they'll say is, we need to be different. We're the salt and light of the world, so people should see a distinction in us. And up to that point, I say, amen, 100%. That is what the Bible teaches. But then they will create a man book, really a man-made book of rules and hold them up and say, and this is what that distinction is. Well, I would like to counter that and say, we find the distinction in here. And I don't want anyone to ever think we're different because we're weird because of the own rules that we've created. I want people to find me to be unique and find you to be unique because they see Christ in you. What distinguishes us from other people is the Spirit of God in your life. It is the fruit of the Spirit. When people see that, when they see how you love, when they see the joy you have, the contentment you have, the mercy you show other people, your work ethic, and how you take care of people, can I tell you, they're going to see something different. And that's going to have a lot more of a draw for people when they see genuine Christianity, someone who's walking after Christ, as opposed to someone, let me manufacture all of these extra biblical things and put them on my life. That is not salt and light. That's not being light. What people need is the grace of God, and that will happen when we're walking in the Spirit, because the grace of God, or the grace of God will flow through our lives. People will notice that we're like Jesus Christ. So as followers, as imitators, we need to be walking in the light. But we also need to walk in wisdom. So to be an imitator of Christ, we walk in love, we walk in light, and we walk in wisdom. Starting in verse number 15, it says, See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Wherefore, be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is, and be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. So it starts off talking about that when it talks about being walking soberly. It means to be careful to walk not as a fool, to but, but to walk as wise. And it says to do this because the days are evil, because we need to redeem the time. But I want to clarify you for what, what, what wisdom really is. 
Sometimes we conflate the idea of wisdom with knowledge. But if you're honest, like me, and maybe you've been this person, sometimes you can have all the smarts in the world or know someone who's got all the smarts in the world, but they live a very stupid life. It doesn't match. I remember uh, going to a school with a kid named Pat. Uh, Pat was a very smart kid. I think I was only a sophomore, and he was almost savant in his level of math. And I remember when we were in algebra, the guy had no problem. I mean, a teacher could call him, he could do it, and they were getting him in more advanced programs. And he was even being groomed to, uh, I think, work at that time. I don't know if it was Equistar or DuPont up in Clinton to uh, work with their scientists. Like, everyone wanted this kid. And I was the other kid that, while he was answering all the questions, I was drawing comics in my, uh, you know, in my notebook. And they called Pat, he would answer the question. They would call Larry, and I'd be like, oh, Batman. Um, different levels there. But while he had all of this knowledge going for him, he started hanging out with some bad people. He started making some bad life choices. And all of this potential that he had, it was squandered. The company no longer wanted him. The colleges that were going to take him, they no longer wanted him. And a lot of it had to do with chemical dependence and drug abuse. So we would say that he had knowledge, but he didn't have wisdom. Wisdom is really living out the knowledge that we have. It's knowledge applied. And if you've got kids, you've probably said this to your kids. I've said this to mine just recently. I think maybe for the first time to my oldest because she does know better now. She does something and she knows the rules of something bad happened. And I said, Adeline, you know better. So knowledge there wasn't the issue. It was a lack of wisdom. So we are, again, we, told, we were told to redeem the time because the days are evil. And to redeem the time, it, it means to ransom back. In the sin-cursed world we live in, it's very easy for day by day, moment by moment, for time to go to waste, to be given to evil. And I know this isn't the best practice to have, but I can even look back at my own life sometimes and think about the times that I've squandered and, and, and just wish that I had lived a little bit differently because that is something I could ransom back. And what Paul's telling us that as followers of Christ, as imitators of Christ, that we need to not just have the knowledge that we read for the first three chapters of Ephesians, but we also need to have the wisdom to live that out. And by living that out and by walking in the power of the Holy Spirit, we can ransom back time. We can ransom back those moments that are normally given to evil and actually ransom them to something that will be profitable for the kingdom of God. Something that has an eternal investment. But there's a lot of question, though, as far as the importance of knowing the will of God. And it talks about this because it says that we need to know, we need to discern what the will of the Lord is. And this is where wisdom and knowledge, it really becomes an important conversation. And Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, The secret things belong unto the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong unto us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. Sometimes people will say, well, you know, if we don't have the, the knowledge we need, it, it tells us in James to, to pray and God will give it to us. Well, it doesn't use the word knowledge there. It uses the word wisdom. The reality is, when the book of the law was given to Israel, the nation of Israel, one of the emphasis he had was for them to saturate their minds with it and to saturate the minds of their children with it so they understood how they should live. God is not going to tell you everything. He doesn't have to, and well, one, what we find in the Bible isn't nearly big enough for all the knowledge in the universe and all the knowledge that's in his mind. 
And it's not saying that sometimes God won't act and make things clear to you, but I think sometimes we have the tools that are already necessary for us found in the Word of God, but because we don't know the Word of God and we don't practice wisdom, it's hard for us to redeem this time and to do the things that we are supposed to do. And we sit paralyzed like, God, what do you want me to do? What should be the next decision that I have? And what we're trying to make happen or what we're expecting God to do is almost like the uh, Gideon and the fleece. But in today's context, you're thinking, okay, God, I've got this next big decision that I'm going to make. And instead of getting into the word of God and walking in wisdom and filtering your ideas and what you believe, what might be the options through what we know clearly taught in the Bible, what we're waiting for is in Iowa, perhaps a crop duster with a long banner on the end of it that says, hey, so-and-so, God says, do this, talk to this person and go here. And then, oh, everything will be clear. God doesn't always do that. In fact, frequently we know he doesn't. But what we do need to know are the things that he shared with us. So sometimes when we're paralyzed, we're not sure, what should we do? What can I do to redeem the time? What do I need to do before I make these next big, big decisions? Is We need to get to the point in our lives where we're saturating our minds with the word of God on a daily basis and walk in wisdom. And then when we pray to God, God, I don't know what to do. It's usually God bringing us some scripture to your mind. Something you've read in the past. And I think I've, I've talked about this before as well, too. I remember one time getting a counsel from Dr. Getch at West Coast, and I was looking for a yes and no answer. I wanted that banner in the sky, but all he did to me was quote to me like 35, 40 verses of scripture off the top of his mind. You know what happened? He didn't tell me yes or no, but I walked away knowing the answer. That is what's supposed to happen. That's what it means to walk in wisdom. So instead of always being paralyzed and wondering what to do, can I tell you, get into the word of God, pray for wisdom. Then the Holy Spirit of God can take the things that you've learned from the word of God and show you how to apply it to your life. And when we do that, we can redeem the time. We can truly walk in wisdom. But then it gets to this next portion. And I found this interesting when I did a study on it. So it says, wherefore, be not unwise. And the portion I was talking about says, you know, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. And it says, be, and be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Okay, that word excess can be translated so many different ways. And that's usually a sign that it was very hard for the translators to find the perfect word because sometimes that's just what happens and you're moving from one language to another. There's no getting around it. So when I was checking into it, and it's actually a, there's that word we use in the Bible for saved, right? In the Greek, it's sozo. And it's the exact opposite. It's talking about unsaved. So he's telling us to redeem the time because the days are evil, but not to be drunk with wine wherein it is excess. You could say uh, riotous living or it's unsaved. So instead of redeeming the time because the days are evil, and it goes on to say, and don't do this because this is unsaved. This is time that's not redeemed. Because when we're controlled by something besides the Holy Spirit of God, we can't redeem the time. And be careful about how rigid you take this passage too. Uh, yes, it says not to be drunk with wine, but it has a much more of a broad application than that. Uh, point of fact being like this. Imagine the Apostle Paul, he sends this letter to the church at Ephesus, and he gets there, and everyone is walking around in a stupor. They're falling over themselves, and they're puking. And then he says, guys, didn't I just say not to be drunk with wine? And someone says, well, Paul, I didn't have a drop of wine, but we had barrels of mead. There's a broader application there. It's saying not to be controlled by a substance. Not to be controlled by things that would pull us away from being controlled by the Holy Spirit of God. So redeem the time, walk in wisdom, know what the will of the Lord is. Don't be drunk with wine, don't be controlled by something, but be filled with the Spirit. 
gives us this pattern how to redeem the time, how to make profitable use of our time. And it gives us the fruit of what that will look like. It says that we'll be speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Someone walking in the Spirit has a song in their heart. It's giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Someone walking in the Spirit is thankful. Submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Someone who's walking in the Spirit has a submissive spirit, an attitude of servanthood. But then this takes us to the next portion of Scripture, where it talks about the importance of being in submission. Because part of walking in wisdom is know how to navigate our relationships. And uh, I'm not going to be preaching Ephesians chapter number 6. That's going to be a Caleb's deal, so I'm going to touch on this very lightly because I know sometimes, I'm sure everyone, every pastor is like this, if you're sharing a sermon series, this is kind of a little insight of what goes through our minds. When the pastor who's preaching before you preaches, you're like, oh, I sure hope he doesn't take this because I really wanted to, to, to really focus on this. And then the pastor brings up that passage, and you're like, oh, come on, man, you stole my fire. Just so you know, that does happen. So this theme starts of relationships. It talks about husband and wife, children and parents, and employees or servants and masters or your employers. But it's all done in the context of knowing Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, because the husbands are to, or the wives are to submit to their husbands as Christ does to the church, right? And then the husband is to love the wife as Christ loves the church. The children are to obey their parents in the Lord, and the fathers are to raise them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. The employee is supposed to serve their master as they would serve Christ, and the master is supposed to manage in a way where they are mindful that they are under common management of Jesus Christ. So the whole context of these relationships are found in the context of serving one another within the realm of Jesus Christ being our Lord and Savior. Now, that being said— some people will take this last portion of scripture and it says, submit yourselves to one another in the fear of God. And they'll make the argument that when it talks about wives submitting to your husbands, well, it really means that we submit to one another. That is true to a point. God has also set up certain rules. I think someone once said that this service that's done to one another, it's reciprocal, but not necessarily symmetrical. So we do serve one another back and forth, but the way that looks has to be done in the way that God ordained things to be. We serve one another the way God tells us to serve one another, which is also why it's important that we look at the whole argument of a passage, because some people are really stuck on that. Well, let's take this argument to the rest, of, uh, the rest of the passage as far as relationships. Submitting to one another in a general way, if it meant the way that some people would like to take it, let's take this outside of marriage and let's talk about your children. Do your children tell you to clean up their room? If you are going to go to work on Monday and you either are a boss or you're going to work for a boss and you say, well, I've got to take this logic to where it leads me. So your boss tells you to do something. Well, you know, sir or ma'am, I think today you should do that. It's not going to go over so well. And it's because God does say that we submit to one another, but it's within the way God ordained that it should be done. So we're going to get to that here where it says to uh, submission in marriage. It says, Wives submit to their husbands, starting in verse number 22. Wives, submit, to your, uh, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. And he is the savior of the body. 
Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. And I would like to say this, uh, first of all, our world is constantly changing. Ideas of what are acceptable change from generation to generation and from culture to culture. But because we do serve a God who never changes, that means in every culture, in every generation, there's always going to be things in the Bible that aren't palatable for a lot of people. But it doesn't mean they're not true. God is God and whose truth stands in every culture, in every generation. And this is one of those passages where today it doesn't really set well because of what's been brought about by feminism really tries to undermine what the scripture teaches. But before I go into it, I, I would like to say what this does not mean. This does not mean that one person has more or less value than the other. The Bible says that both man and woman were made in the image of God. Our dignity and our value come from the same place. I believe it's 1 Peter chapter 3 that states that we are co-heirs of grace. That's talking about husbands and wives. So there's no difference in value. So when people make that claim as far as what the Bible teaches, they don't understand scripture. God values men and women the same both image bearers of Christ. This also doesn't mean that it's okay to accept abuse. And I'm bringing this up on purpose because there are Christians, and I've heard this, who horribly take this out of Scripture. And there's even been men who will beat their wives, and they'll take this passage and say, well, if you tell me not to treat my wife the way I want to, and she's not obeying me the way I want to, then they'll make the comment that, you know, she's not submitting me, and you're, you're undermining, you know, what the Scripture says, the authority that I have. That's not what this is teaching. That's not what this is teaching at all. And a good case study for this is keep in mind that the Bible has set up multiple different forms of structured order, both family and government. And in government, we can go to Romans chapter 13, and it talks about how the government is supposed to be the righteous servant of God. In an ideal world, people who are living righteously shouldn't have to fear the government, and people who are actually living in sin or doing things that are horrible, committing crimes, and that should fear government— because they don't bear the sword in vain. But what happens then when the Christian finds themselves living under a government that's opposing to what God is telling us to do? Well, we do what the apostles would say. We have to obey God rather than men. And while as husbands might have authority over their wives and wives are asked to submit to their husbands, it does not mean submitting to abuse. It does not mean following your husband into sin, because I like what the Apostle Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. And wives, as your husband is following Christ and he's trying to follow the leading of the Lord, follow him as he follows Christ. It doesn't mean you have to accept abuse. In fact, that's not acceptable. I like what Pastor Joel talks about over and over again about seeking justice. That's one of those situations where if you're in that situation, you can seek justice. And it doesn't mean that, you, again, that you're of less value. And it doesn't mean that your husband can ask you to follow him into sin. That is not what the Bible teaches. But what does it mean? It means that from the very beginning, all the way back in Genesis, God ordained that men would be the head of the household, that they would be the spiritual leaders of their home. But then it talks to the husbands about how they're supposed to do this. And it says, husbands are to love their wives. In verse number 25, husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it that he might sanctify it and cleanse it with a washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth, them, or loveth his wife loveth himself, 
No man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord, the church. We see this story and this example, this illustration that God gives for marriage, of it being between Christ and the church. So while wives are to submit to their husbands, it says that husbands are to love their wives in such a way that Christ did for the church that they're willing to die because of the love that they have. Uh, this is one of the portions of scripture when I've done weddings I love to go to. Don't go to it all the times, but there's an illustration I found that I use. It talks about Cyrus, who was a ruler. He, uh, he captured a prince, and uh, he asked the prince, what would you do for the lives of your children? And the prince said to Cyrus, well, I'd give you half of my kingdom. What would you do for your own life? He said, I would give you everything I have. He said, what would you do for your wife? He said, I'd give you my own life. And that's the kind of sacrificial love that we should have for our wives. And you can see when we take all of this into context, this does not leave room for an abuse of authority. If it's, done, if it's being done the biblical way, yes, wives submit to husbands, but husbands love their wives in such a way they're willing to die for her. That is an intense, intense love. It also talks about a nurturing love. It says, For no man hath ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord, the church. Christ nourishes and takes care of his people. And he's saying in the same way that husbands should do this for their wives, and it should be done in a way that you're actually treating your wife, and the things that you're doing for your wife would be the things that you would want to be done essentially to you, how you take care of yourself. That leaves no room for abuse, either physical or verbal. It doesn't leave any room to take advantage of someone because that's not what you do to yourself. It doesn't leave any room to neglect someone because that's not what you'd want to do to yourself. Though I will say in COVID-19, um, I've, uh, not I should be more focused on uh, neglecting food, but I'm not going to go there too much at home all day. The point is, is we are naturally, as creatures, very selfish. We're good at taking care of ourselves and doing what's most convenient for us. And he's saying, husbands, to love your wives in such a way that you would love your wife as you would your own flesh. All the things that you would want to do to you that would bring you happiness, joy, pleasure, safety, health— is what you should do for your wife because as a husband, it is your responsibility to have your wife in a situation where she thrives, where she can grow closer to the Lord, where she knows she can find security in the things that you're doing. And again, this doesn't work for those who have abusive relationships with their wives and try to use this passage and say, well, you're undermining my authority. No, sir, you're abusing your authority. This is not what God told you you could do. He says to love your wife as much as you do your own life. Be willing to die for her and love her so much that you would take care of her just as much as you would your own body. In fact, there's actually judgment on the husband. In First Peter, it talks about it, if they don't live with their wives according to knowledge. God says that if you mistreat your wife, he won't even hear your prayers because God takes your responsibility very serious. And as a husband, and if you're out there and you're a husband, you're responsible. God holds you accountable for how you treat your wife and the direction that you're going. But we also see that marriage is a picture of the relationship Christ has with his people. So this goes both ways. So just as marriage is a really a reflection of salvation, salvation then on the flip side 
is also reflected by what our marriage is. Uh, verse number 30 through the rest of the passage says, For we are members of his body and of his flesh and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is the great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife, even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. When a, when a person becomes saved, they become one with Jesus Christ. And Paul talks about how this is a great ministry, or a great mystery, because this is a verse that's used all the way back in Genesis. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. So it's almost as all the way back in Genesis, this was like a foreshadowing what was going to happen with salvation between Christ and the church, his people, that they would come together and that they would become one. And can I tell you, if you don't know Christ as your Savior today, he's done everything that needs to happen for this relationship to take place. He lived a perfect life, and he died on the cross to pay for your sins. That's why it says Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. A covenant that God wants to enter into you with, it came at a cost. It came at a price. There's value behind it, and that price was his blood. Because we were natural-born rebels against God, opposing his will and opposing who God is and everything he wanted us to do on the inside. The Bible why it says that we were by nature children of wrath living against God on a moment-by-moment basis. But, but God, because of the love that he had for us, Jesus Christ did live that perfect life. He fulfilled all righteousness. He'd never sinned in everything that the righteous law of God required to be done. He fulfilled it perfectly. And then he died on the cross. He paid for our sins, and he rose again the third day. And then when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, it's like saying those marriage vows. And we think about that God says that he loves us so much that he was willing to die for us. And today, if you want to be one with Christ, if you want to enter in that relationship, if you will by faith repent of your sins and submit to him as the church does to Christ, as talked about in this reflection here, put your faith solely in him, you can enter into this covenant, just like the covenant of marriage. And it comes with all the benefits of marriage. Everything that's a part of his kingdom he allows, you to, he allows you to enjoy it because you're marrying into his family. All the peace that he gives, all the riches of heaven, all the joy, they become yours the moment you repent of your sins and you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And it says, starting in verse number 26, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. And sometimes, depending on the baggage you had, and this might be you, before you've come into a relationship, sometimes it makes us feel unashamed that we wouldn't want to step into it. And, and there's been couples that are way that before, you know, here on earth, they think, well, I've got these things that are done in my past. And so because I'm, I'm scared of letting these things know to the person that, that I, I might be marrying, can I tell you, you never have to worry about that with Jesus Christ because when he died to pay for your sins, he did it so that the church, his bride, would come before him spotless. When you come to Christ, it doesn't matter what your past is. It doesn't matter what the baggage that is that you carry in your life. When you trust him, the righteousness of Jesus Christ that he lived is put on your account. So when the Father looks at you, he doesn't see the stain of sin. He doesn't see the shame that you carry around. He only sees the righteousness 
of Jesus Christ. And this is all a part of this context of salvation and how it's like marriage. He died for you. He loves you. He wants to lovingly guide you. He wants you to follow him, and he's going to nourish you. He's going to cherish you. He's going to make you spotless, not in just your standing with Jesus Christ, but as you follow Christ, as the church does Christ, it goes even further than that because we are his workmanship created unto good works. What? In Christ Jesus. So not only does he make you spotless, he gives you a new life. And it allows you to follow him and become more and more like him on a daily basis. I've uh, gone through a lot and did what I could to trim this down so you guys weren't having to listen to this for a solid hour and a half or two hours. But look, there is a lot of application with this. Are you walking in love? Are you walking as children of light? Are you walking in wisdom? How are you treating your spouse? So many different things in this passage. I would encourage you, even after, I, uh, after I, you get done listening to this message, that you go through and you reread this passage because there's so many truths. And ask God to give you wisdom to apply it to your life. And maybe you're not saved and you uh, stumbled across our page online. Look, I, it's not an accident. You're, you're listening. God wants you to be one with him. He wants to forgive you. He wants you to enter into this relationship. And if you're here today and perhaps you think, well, I made a profession of faith when I was a child or maybe, maybe not when you were a child. And in looking at your life, you realize that when I examine the fruit of my life and what's my heart and what's going on inside of me and the actions that are being produced by my heart, it's just not something that's very fitting for a Christian. Maybe it's time to self-examine, to have some reflection. If there's no conflict inside of you and the Holy Spirit isn't convicting you, you don't see the chastening hand of God in your life to, to draw you back to him, maybe you truly need to trust Christ. And maybe you have trusted Christ and you're still living in sin because that's possible. Can I tell you, because of who you are in Jesus Christ, the one of these things that you're never going to find in this passage about the picture of Christ in the church is uh, Christ never leaves his bride. God always loves you. He's always ready to nurture and cherish you. In fact, that's what he's doing right now, even while you're in your sin. And while it might seem unpleasant while God is chasing you, can I tell you, he's doing it for your own good because he does love you and he does cherish you and he's trying to bring you back. And when you come back to God, can I tell you, you're not going to find a, a, a heavy-fisted Savior. You're going to find a loving shepherd. You're going to find that he, was ex he accepts you fully. So however God is speaking today, if you'll just submit that over to him,